Amen. If you have that uh, learning guide, you, you can take this out. And we'll, yes, Donna? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And I, people have asked about that. I went to a urologist in, on Monday, uh, and he was very kind and nice, and he's, he's willing to help to do whatever things we need to do. But I go to a neurologist, uh, or neurosurgeon, uh, next Monday. And so we're kind of on hold to, to see what he says about what, what we're facing right now. I saw some others come in. Did y'all, did y'all get a, a, a study guide? Gary, do you still have any of those? Um, if you don't have a study guide, uh, let, raise your hand and, and he'll get you one of those. You might be able to share those. If there's any on tables, but make sure somebody gets one of those. If you look at the very front of the study guide, each week I'll be passing one of these out. And, and I want you to know something. You, you're going to have some homework to do. All right? You'll have, every week you'll have some homework to do because it's not going to do you any good. You're not going to learn how to study the Bible by coming here and let me talk to you about how to study the Bible. All right? You're going to have some homework to do. And, and I'll tell you one thing we are going to do. We're going to implement again. We're going to have pop test uh, every, every Wednesday night. You're going to have a pop test. You get to take a test about what you studied. So that means you're supposed to study. Isn't that right, teachers, former teachers, wherever you are? It means you're supposed to study and know some of these facts. But I do that so that you'll be prepared and you'll actually spend some time regarding it. But if you'll, if you'll see that very first, um, very first paragraph on the page, it says, One thing I believe the Lord has impressed upon my heart is to do a more effective job of teaching and training people to study His Word. I need to spend quality time teaching people how to study the Bible the way I've learned to study it. You heard the old adage, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him what? For a lifetime. Okay? And it's one thing for me to study God's Word and then come and to preach a message to you or to teach a truth to you. That's one thing. But for me to have the opportunity to teach you what I've learned over however many years, I think I'm 100 by now, but um, however many years I've been doing this, to be able to teach you some of the things that I've learned about how to study God's Word, I think will be helpful to you and be rich for you. As we get started, though, let me just tell you a little bit about my early beginnings and, and how I really learned how to study God's Word, and you'll see that throughout our study. I was 18 years old when I was called to preach. I didn't come from a preacher's family. Matter of fact, my dad wasn't even a Christian till many years after I had been preaching and I had a chance to lead my dad to Christ in his, while he was in his 50s or late 50s. And so I didn't come from a, a, a pastor, preacher background. As far as I know, I'm the only Amos there's ever been who's a preacher. We, we, we were thieves and everything, but we weren't preachers too much. And, uh, but God called me and called me to preach. And, and the fact that I, I wasn't from a preacher's family, nobody told me, what you, all those little tools you had out there to preach. But I, I had a pastor who believed when you got called to preach, you just need to preach. So I surrendered to the ministry on April the 15th of 1976, and my first sermon was May the 30th of 1976. I'm telling you, my preacher believed you, if you call the ministry, you're supposed to preach. So I took, that, I took the Bible and I'd learned about living the Spirit-filled life and letting the Holy Spirit direct your life. And I just took the Bible and I, just, I basically just opened it up and said, God, I have no idea what this says. <laughs> I have no idea what, but I'm supposed to preach. <laughs> and so I need for you to share with me 
of what this word says. And, uh, you know, my pastor told me I need to go to a Baptist school or a Bible college somewhere, but I was the second of three children, and I was in the middle. So being in the middle, my sister was two years older than me, my brother was three years younger than me, and it was impossible for my parents to send, I was always in school with one of them. You know, they, were, they had some times they were by themselves, but I was always in school with one of them. So there was no way for me to go to the expensive Baptist school or a private school at, while my parents were trying to help us to go through school. So I went to a state university, graduated from the University of South Alabama, and I'd have a chance to go to, to Bible school or to those Baptist schools, like he told me that I should. Well, in the midst of that, God just gave me opportunities to preach. I mean, just everywhere I turned, I was preaching revivals, everywhere, and, and I didn't know one thing about preaching. I mean, I didn't, know, I didn't know how to study or anything else. All I did was I just took the Bible and opened it up, and I read it and said, God, help, help me to know what this means. You know, help me to know what this says. And, and God would give me the message, give me something. I'd stand up and I'd preach and, and, and just share, you know, as best I could. Well, finally, when I graduated from college, I did go to seminary, Southwestern Seminary, got my master's degree, eventually got my doctor's degree. One of the more interesting things in my life was that once I, I got educated and, and I, I learned theology and I learned about history and I learned about Greek and Hebrew and all of those kinds of things that you learn, I went back to those first messages that I preached. And I opened up those messages, started looking over those messages, and I tell you, they were as sound the, theologically as any sermon I've ever preached. There, there wouldn't be a one thing hardly I would change about them. And it just goes to show you that you don't have to have a theological education and you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew for God to teach you truths in His Word. And, and that's why the Holy Spirit was given to us. And you'll see as we go through this, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is here to teach us the Word of God. And, and who better to teach us the Word of God than the one who wrote it, right? Right? And how is the Scripture given to us? It is written by the Holy Spirit using the instruments of men. We are, it is Spirit-breathed. The Holy Spirit breathes upon men and uses them as an instrument in His hand to write God's Word. And so we might say, I don't understand it, but there's not one thing the Holy Spirit doesn't understand. He He understands everything, exactly what it means and exactly what it applies to us. And so that's the greatest teacher is the Holy Spirit of God to teach us. If you're dependent upon any other source than the Holy Spirit, you're dependent on the wrong one or the wrong thing. Now, all those other instruments are great and wonderful. And I, well, I'll show you a number of tools that I use and good things that are helpful. And, and a lot of, I, I think that'll be beneficial things to you. But, but the Holy Spirit of God and, and Him being the, the teacher, your teacher, is the most important thing of all. And it, isn't it wonderful that God wants you and me to understand His Word? That He gave us this Word as, so that we'll understand it, we'll know how to live by it. And so I want you to, to know that and grasp that and, and to be able to see some of the things that over the, over the years that I've learned as far as studying and being able to put things together and thoughts together. Uh, if, the next paragraph... Uh, Through this study, participants will become familiar with the Bible study principles, Bible study tools and helps, organizational skills, presentation techniques. A participant in the class will grow in his or her ability to study the Bible. A 
participant can improve his or her teaching skills. The course will add a new dimension and depth to understanding God's Word. And it breaks down to about eight or ten weeks. The following syllabus outlines the study. Tonight, we have an introduction to the course plus knowing your Bible. We're just going to talk about knowing your Bible tonight, all right? Then we're going to be identifying the teacher and the principle of asking questions. You need to underline that, the principle of asking questions. Then we're going to talk about two words. I don't know if you've ever heard these two words before. Exegesis and eisegesis. Y'all heard those before? Exegesis and I. Well, you learned something tonight. There's exegesis and eisegesis. And what the difference in those two things are. And then you'll see 2 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 4, asking questions. That's going to be an assignment that we have, and we'll work together through it. All right? Then we're going to talk about expository versus topical. What's the difference between expository teaching and topical teaching? Or expository preaching and topical preaching. And there's not a lot of difference between preaching and teaching. One's just louder. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking about that. I mean, I, <laughs> it really is. There's not a whole lot. Good preaching has teaching in it, and good teaching has a measure of preaching in it, all right? And, and so you just need to get that in your heart, in your mind. But tools used in research... Word studies, five, and tools used in research, part two. Organizing thoughts. How do you put thoughts together after you get, your, get all the stuff worked out? Methods of study and preparation. Important ingredients to successful delivery. Final thoughts, questions, and answers about things. And it's going to be a fun time and a rich time as we look through this. Now, the following materials will be needed for this study. You're going to need to bring your Bible all right, you're going to need to bring your Bible. I hope you have your Bible tonight, because we're going to be looking at your Bible in just a moment. But you're going to need your Bible, not, not, your, not your Bible on your phone. You need your Bible, okay? So we'll be looking at that, understanding some things about it. A notebook for taking notes. You're going to need to want to take some notes, all right? Now, you can write on this tonight, but you'll, you'll want to take some notes about this. And then research tools. There'll be certain research tools I'll show you, and I'll say, if you're going to really study the Bible, you, you ought to buy this. You ought to buy this. Or at least availability to a library. And our church library has a number of, of different commentaries and things in it you can use. Or thank the Lord because of internet. Now you can go on the internet and you can get anything. From Strong's Concordance to Vine's Dictionary. You can go on there and, and pull all that stuff up. It's amazing what we're able to do with the internet these days, right? Had the whole library right at our fingertips. If you know how to use it. Janice knows how to use it, so that's how I, I get it. She's able to pull it up for me. All right? Now, I want you to look on the inside. The first part of it is called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth, Notes for Session 1. And I want you to know the Bible, but I want you to know your Bible. Okay? So the first thing we're going to talk about is the Bible. If you're going to be a teacher of the Bible, and you're going to stand before somebody, then don't you think that they ought to have the right to expect you to know something about the Bible? Is that right? Wouldn't that be true? And if you're going to stand up and proclaim it, you ought to be able to know something about it. So here's some interesting facts about the Bible. The Bible it was put together by 40 authors. 40 different authors wrote the Bible. Now we know that only one real author wrote the Bible, amen? And who's that? That's God's Word. God's Spirit wrote it. But He used 40 different people. 
And in using those 40 different people, he uses their talents, gifts, their style. He uses all kinds of different ways and different things about them to use it. But the interesting thing is that there is a consistent story that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation using 40 different people and personalities to be able to record God's word. Where one person over here records about what is going to happen, and then years and years later, somebody else records what happens that is exactly what the other person said hundreds of years before was going to happen. How could that be? How could that happen? How could it be that, that somebody could write something in one history, and then years and years later, it happens exactly like it? Well, logically, just logically, it tells you that somebody has to be overseeing that whole project. It can't happen by accident. Certain things may happen by accident, but, but it can't continue to happen that way. And so your logic demands of you that there's a plan. There's a master designer. There's somebody who puts this together. Your logic demands that. Now, what do I mean by that logic? Well, I've given this illustration to some of you before, but just to, to make that... If I had 10 pennies in my pocket, and on each one of those pennies, there was a number written from 1 to 10. All right? Got in your mind? 10 pennies in my pocket, written 1 to 10. If I were to reach my hand in my pocket, and I pull out a penny, what is the likelihood that I pull out a penny, and it has the number 1 on it? Let me see how good you are at math. It is 1 out of what? 1 out of 10. Now, that might happen. Okay, that might happen. But then, what if I return that penny to my pocket and the very next penny that I pull out has a two on it? What is the likelihood or the ratio that I could pull out a one and a two consecutive order? What is that? That's one by what? One by 100. That's exactly right. I put that penny back in my pocket. This time, I reach in and I pull out the three. That means that I have pulled out in order one, two, three out of ten pennies in my pocket. What is the likelihood that I could do that? One in one thousand. One in one thousand. Do you hear that? If I do it one more time and pull the four out, it's one in ten thousand. If I were to do that in sequence, in order, all the way from one to ten, it would be one to the tenth Tenth power. That's one with a ten zeros behind it. I can't even remember that much. That's how much our country's in debt right now. <laughs> you know, but but I, I'm, here, I'm here to tell you that that's just impossible. Now, let me tell you what your mind, let me tell you what your mind would do. Your mind, if I reached in there and I pulled out a one, you'd say, okay, that's possible. Two, three. By the time I pulled out the fourth one, which would be 1 in 10,000, your mind would say, he's not doing that. He's not doing that by accident. He has a plan. He's got some kind of mark on that penny. He knows what those pennies are. He's feeling something. That cannot happen by accident. Your logic demands that there must be a plan. Right? Well, that's what the Bible does. You, you, you can take more than, 10, more than 10 
events that happened in sequence, more than ten events that were proclaimed and years later fulfilled exactly the way God said that it was going to be done. Whenever you read that, that can't be happenstance. It can't be by accident. Your logic demands there must be a master plan. There's somebody who's overseeing that, somebody who's working the plan, and the only one who's there all the time is who? God. So the Bible stands the test of logic. Forty authors. Over how long a period of time? Tells you. How long? 1,600 years. 1,600 years from when the first scripture was written by Moses to the last of the scriptures that were written in the epistles. All right? 1,600 years. The Old Testament was written in what? In Hebrew, with short passages in Aramaic. And the New Testament was written in what? In Greek. All right. I gave you an insert. See your little insert right here? All right. I've given to you the book of Genesis. And that is from the Hebrew Bible. All right? Any of you read Hebrew? Can y'all translate Hebrew? Right. You going to read it to me tonight? You'd rather not. To. Okay. It's interesting about the Hebrew language. I give you Genesis 1.1. So you just look at the first line. And it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's what it says, the first line. All right? In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You know that, don't you? I mean, you know it from the, from the English version. That's what it does say. Okay. Interesting thing about the, the language of Hebrew. He, Hebrew language is read from right to left. Right? When you read it, you don't read it from left to right like we do. You read it from right to left. Right to left. Boy, that's pretty tough. Whenever you're used to reading left to right, I'll say you're reading right to left. But that's the way the Hebrew language. So whenever you take the Hebrew Bible is, you take the back of the Bible, which you would consider the back of the Bible, and that's where Genesis is. And then you're going from right to left, right to left. All right? That's the Hebrew language. Now, here's an interesting fun fact for you. You know, one of the interesting things about, about languages is that languages that are on the eastern side of Israel, Jerusalem especially, they seem to all write from right to left. Whereas those on the west side of Jerusalem which is where we are, we write from and read from left to right. It's like God says right there is the center of His world. The center of His interest is Jerusalem right there, and everybody's language moves towards the center of His world, which is Jerusalem. Okay? All right. Now, that's the, that's the Hebrew language. On the flip side, then, is the Greek language. And I give you uh, at the very top, it is John 3.16. Alright, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You see God there? You see one that looks like God? What is that? It's about the fifth word over there. What? Theos. You see that? The, theos. Alright. For the God who loved the world gave His only Son, the one and only special Son, in order that all who believe unto Him will not perish, but have life everlasting, on and on. That's what it means, ions, on and on. That's the Greek language, all right? And the Greek language is a fully declined, 
fully declined language, which in conjugated language, which means the order of the words don't matter. You know, in, in our language, the subject is first, and then you got the predicate, and you got the noun. In English language, it doesn't matter. I mean, Hebrew language, uh, Greek language doesn't matter. It's fully declined and conjugated. It's based on the endings of the word, and they can be placed anywhere. Anywhere. It's based on what the, what the, where the end of the word is that's there. Now, I say this to you. Why do I say that? Because whenever you're going to study in, in theology or, or in seminary or something, you're going, to have, you're going to learn Hebrew, and you're going to learn Greek, and you're going to have to translate all of those, all of those different things. And, and it's great. Greek is a lot of fun. Hebrew will drive you crazy. Because Greek is a very precise language. Hebrew is more ambiguous than our language, if that can possibly be. Yeah. Ambiguous, our language, we use one word to mean all kinds of many meanings, right? I love my wife. I love my dog. I love a hot dog. Right? Do we use that? Now, where does Lynn rank? Where does she rank? Yeah. See, one word means so many. Well, the Hebrew language is more ambiguous than that. One Hebrew word may have 15 meanings, and it all is based on where it is in the sentence. Whereas the Greek language is a very precise language. There are four words for Greek in classical Greek, and there are three words, I mean, for love in classical Greek, and there are three words for love in what's called Koine Greek. Koine is what the Bible was written in. It's, it's everyday language Greek. And, and each one of those words, uh, eros, phileo, agape, they mean specific things, specific things. And that's why the Greek language is fun, because it helps you to understand and to get things in great detail about it. Now, I say this to you because whenever somebody says, well, have you, do you, what translation do you read? What translation? There's only one real translation. Y'all know that, don't you? That's the King James Version. The 1611 model. That's God's Word. Well, whenever they say that's God's Word, you just need to take out the Greek New Testament, hand it to them, say, well, this is what it was written in. Or hand them the Hebrew Bible and say, well, this is what it was written in. <laughs> How many of you can read that? That's what it's written in. All, everything else is a translation. It's all translations. Beyond that. Good translations. Wonderful translation. There's not one thing wrong with the King James Version. It's the most beautiful of all translations. But it doesn't mean it's the best of translations always. But, but you do have to go back to the original language to really be able to find it. Hebrews, the Old Testament, it might be on your test next week. And what's on the New Testament, written in the New Testament? Written what? Greek. Man, you're a smart group. All right. Listen to what it says. The word testament means covenant. There's a covenant. The Old Testament is the covenant God made with man before Jesus Christ came. That's the covenant of the law. The covenant of the law, to obey the law and to keep the law and to offer sacrifice and go through those. It's what you were doing, what you were earning by faith, but it's what you do. And none of us are righteous, no, not one. The only way Abraham was saved, he was saved by faith. And therefore God called him a friend of God. But the covenant was the Old Testament covenant. I, I don't know. I'm glad I don't live in the Old Testament covenant. I'm, I'm glad I don't. I, I, I like to live in the New Testament, right? Or the New Covenant. This is the covenant God made after Christ came. And that's why the Old Testament is 
Genesis through Malachi, and the New Testament is Matthew through the Revelation. And right there between the two is the cross. Right there between the two covenants is the cross and Jesus coming. The most significant event that ever happened in life. Jesus coming. Amen? All right. Now, listen to what it says about it. There are how many books in the Bible? Sixty-six. Sixty-six. Now, here's a little thing that will help you to remember something. How many of them in the Old Testament? There were 39. How many is in the New Testament? Do that math. 27. But here's, here's kind of a little interesting thing. If you're wondering, oh, I can't remember how many they were. 39, 3 times 9 is 27. Helps you, huh? So now your children say, how many books are in the Old Testament? Uh, 3 times 9. 39. How many is in the New Testament? 27. Little things like that help. It's going to help you on your test. You'll remember that. Okay. Some of you will get that math problem wrong, I can tell already. All right, look at, look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament, there are 17 historical books. The first five books are written by Moses. They're called the Pentateuch, all right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Written by Moses, the Pentateuch. Why is it called Pentateuch? Penta means five, that's right, because the Pentagon has five sides, right? So Pentateuch, the five books of the law, the five books of the law that were written by Moses. But then there are 12 more historical books. Picking up from Deuteronomy, you pick up from there, and you go Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And all of those are telling the history, the history, all right? Right in the middle, though, there are the poetry books, what are the poetry books? Which one are they? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. But also included in that is the book of Job. Job is written in poetry. Go back and look at it. It's written in poetry. Now, just because it's written in poetry doesn't mean it's not historical. It's historical events that are happening, that are taking place there. But it just means that the way it's put in order is by poetry and Job's poetry. All right? Then there are the prophetic books. There are five major prophets and four minor prophets. I mean, 12 minor prophets. The five major, what makes a prophet major and what makes him minor? What makes it? What's that? That's right. That's exactly right. Okay? It's the length of the book. The ones that are major are longer. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Included lamentation in there along with Daniel. And then the minor books are that they're short. And there are 12 of those that are the minor prophets that carry all the way to Malachi. All right? That's how the history is broken up. That's how the books are broken up in the Old Testament. Now, look at the New Testament. There are five what we call foundational books. The first four are called what? The Gospels. And what's the Gospel about? The Gospel is about telling the story of Jesus, it's the good news. Four different writers telling a different version of the same story about Jesus. Okay? And what is the other one of those foundational books? Is the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That is is the, the history of the first century church as they birthed into existence and as they walked out there and saw the church expand. And it's all about what the Holy Spirit was doing. It begins with 
Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit came. And then basically it's built around two primary people. Who are the two primary people in the book of Acts it's built around? Peter and who? And Paul. That's right. Now there's some other stories in there. You've got stories about Philip, you know, that happened in Stephen. But the two primary people are the missionary journeys of Paul and the ministry of Peter, of what happens. And here's, here's the great thing about it. The book of Acts is recorded, but the book of Acts is going on and on. <laughs> right now, the Acts are being written. The Acts are being written. They're being recorded right now. What is the Holy Spirit doing in our day? What is the Holy Spirit doing through you? How's the Holy Spirit working among us? See, this is just a, a little small glimpse of how it began, and it continues on. All right? Then you have 21 epistles. What is an epistle? A letter. That's not the wife of an apostle. I had somebody say it. Not the wife of an apostle. Epistle is a what? It's a letter. It's written. There are 21 of those. Paul wrote how many? Paul wrote 14 of them. Could you imagine that? Out of 27 books, Paul wrote 14 of them. You have uh, nine of those that were written to churches, and five of those are what's called pastoral or personal letters. Philemon is an example of a letter that was written in regard to that. Okay? And then you have uh, seven general epistles. Who were some of the ones who wrote general epistles? Huh? That's right. Exactly. James. And then you had Peter wrote general epistle, and so did John. He wrote three of them. Right? And then Jude. All right? Jude. Then you have, hold on a second, then you have in that sense that great book of the Revelation. That apocalyptic book. Written by who? Written by Jesus. Oh, it's the revelation of Jesus. He actually said it, and what did John do? He just recorded it. He just recorded it. Jesus is here to reveal to him things John has never seen before. And, he, and then John gets to have a chance to write it. Don't you, can you imagine being John and writing down all that, what he saw and trying to explain that? What happened in the revelation? All right. Other facts. 1,189 chapters in the Bible. There are 31,373 verses in the Bible. The longest chapter in the Bible is what? All of you ought to know this. Psalm 119. And the shortest one is what? Psalm 117. And here's an interesting thing about that. I encourage everybody to read five Psalms a day. If you read five Psalms a day, then you'll read all 150 Psalms in a month. Okay, and that's wisdom literature. Well, an interesting part is whenever you get over to that day where you've got Psalm 119, huh, that's a long one, but, but the Lord blessed you because he gave you Psalm 117. It's two verses, so he makes up for that. All right. It's great practice to get into. You read that wisdom literature every day. Longest book in the Old Testament is Psalms, and the longest book in the New Testament is what? It's Luke. That's exactly right. Now, let's talk about this. Translation. Translated, translations are translated from the original languages. The best translations go back to the oldest manuscripts. Now, there are, we don't have any that we know of original autographs. You know what original autographs are? That would be when the first time it was written. We have no original autographs. Well, why is that? Because of, of the way it was written. It was written on papyrus. And it was recorded on papyrus. And, those kind of, and by the time they would record it, they'd have to copy it over because that would, papyrus would dry up 
and crinkled. And they had to, that's why scribes, they constantly were, were writing, copying scripture, so it could be on a fresh, a fresh uh, translation rather than it being something that's old. See, but we don't have any original autographs, but we have some glorious manuscripts that go back very close to those original autographs. Now, the oldest of those manuscripts were found in 1948. All right, 1948, that's important. It was found in a place called Qumran. If you ever go to Israel, I'm going back to Israel sometime, you go with me, you'll go to a place called Qumran. And in Qumran, you'll be able to see, and up here on the hillside, some of y'all went, Don, I remember that. Up in the hillside, you'll see these caves up in the hillside. And in those caves is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. And a shepherd who was trying to find some of the sheep was wandering through there, and they found these scrolls. And when they pulled them out, they were the oldest manuscripts that anybody had ever seen, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was found in 1948. Well, since they are the oldest manuscripts, that means they are the closest ones to the original autographs, all right? So that means the best translations are actually translated after 1948 because you have the oldest manuscripts rather than those prior to that. That's like in, in King James Version. I'm not trying to badger the King James Version. I'm just trying to give you some examples. King James Version was written in 1611, all right? It, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls weren't available in 1611 because they were found in 1948. So they were written from the Masoretic text. It was the best, the best text they had at that time. But much, much younger than uh, the Qumran uh, scrolls that were found there. So they used the Masoretic text, and they also used the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew language, or the Old Testament. That, that's what they would use. So that's not the oldest. Well, whenever Qumran came in 1948, the oldest manuscripts were there, they were able to go back and to look and compare what these oldest manuscripts had to say about those passages, that some of those that were in question. That's why in your Bible, if you have a modern translation Bible, sometimes you're going to see something that's going to be in italics, or you're going to put some bracket around it, and it'll say this, not found in oldest manuscripts. Not found in oldest manuscripts. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't... It, doesn't have authority or power or anything like that. It just means that the oldest manuscripts did not record that, did not put that down there. So it could have been edited, put it, what am I saying, editorized and put it there. It could have been added. So what you really want to do is to find those oldest manuscripts that are there, which were from Qumran. Best translations after 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Now I use, most of you know, I use the Amer New American Standard. Okay. I use New American Standard because it, is, it goes back, one, to the oldest manuscripts, and it very distinctly identifies when something is not part of the oldest manuscripts. And the other thing that I do read it for is because it is not written for readability. It is not written to be pretty. It is written to go along with what the Greek language says. It's very choppy, very distinct. You know, it doesn't have any flow to it. It's not easy to memorize because it is very much flowing with the Greek New Testament. So it's, uh, to me, it's the best translation that's there. If you use other translations, that's fine, but New American Standard, I feel like, is closest to the original. All right, let me show you something about your Bible. You got your Bible? Open your Bible up. You need to read the first pages of your Bible in an effort to discover keys and codes used by the publisher. How many of you never looked at the first pages of your Bible? 
You just opened it up, and you just started reading where it was. Okay, I want you to look at your first pages of your Bible. It's going to have a code in there. It's going to tell you what those codes are going to mean. It's going to tell you how that, what those symbols represent. And then it's also going to tell you some, some basic foundations of how they did translations. Okay? And you need to read that. That's one of your assignments for next week, is to read and find out about your Bible and how your Bible is translated, how it does cross-references in everything, and how you handle that, okay? Here's one of the important things, is to find out the paragraph designation by your publisher. How, here's the question in your Bible. How does your, how does your publisher identify a paragraph? Now, you know in English that it's important to identify paragraphs because what is a paragraph? Okay, English teachers, what does a paragraph do? Paragraph is a unit that has the same subject, right? It has the, it's, it's about the same subject, talked about the same thing. So anytime you're going to be able to translate something, you need to be able to find out where are the paragraphs. What does your, how does your Bible distinguish its paragraphs? Okay, Here's one. How many of you have, in your Bible, it, it, tra- it designates the paragraph by having a bold number. The number is bolded. You see it? You see that? How many of you have that? Okay, raise your hand. If you, if you have a bold number, designates the paragraph. All right? All right. Who else? Who's another one? What, what's, what does your Bible do? If it doesn't have a bold number, what, what does your Bible do? Okay, my, I have three translations here, or three Bibles right here. One of them is by bold number. One of them is by a paragraph. You know the paragraph symbol? The paragraph symbol? It has the paragraph symbol. Do any of you have your, any of your translations use the paragraph symbol to identify where your paragraphs begin? Huh? That's that P. It's that fancy little P that's there. Do you all have that? Does anybody have that? Okay. Uh, okay, here, here's another. I have another translation. It has a bold number and the paragraph symbol. To designate it. And then there are some of them that are written in paragraph form. They have indentions. In other words, they're going to carry that indention, and they're going to, all the other verses are going to be in the middle of that paragraph till a new paragraph starts. Do any of you have that? Do you have a translation like that? Where it carries the, the paragraph designation just by indenting it? Have, have, have any of you not found where your, where your paragraph, have you, have you found it? Everybody found it? Have you found yours? Where your paragraphs are? Okay. If anybody has it, just raise your hand if you don't know where the paragraph is. Have you found it? No. Okay. That's important for you to find. All right. Yours is in paragraph form. See how it indents right there? See how it's 25 and all these are, are 26, 27, but it indents there. Everywhere it's indenting like that, that's where the paragraph begins. It does it by the paragraph. Did y'all get yours all done? Y'all found out where yours are? Huh? Back in the back, y'all got yours? Y'all look like a bunch of people in math class that didn't know the answer. <laughs> and I'm hiding behind somebody. I'm not going to... Yeah, indention. Yes. Yes. Yours are bold. There's your bold. It's just going to be... There's a bold. That's right. Whenever the bold numbers identify the beginning of a paragraph. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? Y'all got yours back there? What's yours? Indentions? What's yours back here? Y'all got yours? Uh-oh! Okay. Anybody? What was y'all's? What was your Dallas? 
You brought your pew Bible. You got to, well, put the pew Bible back, Dallas, whenever we get through. <laughs> All right. Okay. This is your assignment for next week. First thing I want you to do, okay, this is important. This is important. All right, y'all listen. I want you to separate all the pages in your Bible. No pages stuck together. It's pretty embarrassing whenever you're in, in, in Bible class or in, in a sermon and somebody's watching you and, and you're supposed to turn to a passage of Scripture and, and your Bible pages are still stuck together. It's not, it's not a real good testimony about your daily Bible reading. So, so the first thing I want you to do to get to know your Bible, I want you to unstick all the pages, all right? So you'll not have that embarrassing situation. Y'all think y'all can do that? This means yes. Okay, unstick all the pages in your Bible. That, it, you know, what it means if there's pages or stuff, you didn't read those pages. You haven't read those yet, all right? So you might have, when you unstick those pages, you might want to just go ahead and read them, if you'd like to do that. If there's not too many of them. Okay, here's the next thing. I want you to read the first pages in your Bible and find out what it says about your translation, what it says about the different symbols and codes and things that are in your cross-references and paragraphs. I just want you to become familiar with your Bible. Your Bible, not just a Bible. And then here's the, here's the last thing. I want you to read 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. I just want you to read it, okay? Because that's the passage that we're going to be working with to start with. And when we learn about asking questions and we learn about how to study, we're going to be dealing with this particular passage. So go ahead and read it just the first time, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we'll, we'll get to know that passage really well. So this is for you to be introduced to. Okay? Yes. You have a problem with what? Okay. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, I'm telling you. It's good stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's good. You can find it. You can look through there. You'll find it. <laughs> All right. Any questions? Now, I told you, I've already warned you, that next week you're probably going to have a pop test when you come in. All right? So that does not mean that you can lay out. I know what you're thinking about. And do not come in late. I know you say, well, I'm going to wait till the test is over. Then I'm coming in. All right? Just look over these things, kind of review, and let's see what we learn, and we'll learn the God's Word together. It's going to be fun. I hope you'll have fun when we study it, rightly divide it, all right? God bless you. Have a good rest of the week. See you Sunday. Yes. Just one second. Just a second. Do what?